There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today in the show, I am recounting the wild, wild adventures I had chasing whitetails across the plains of Nebraska, on the ground, trying to decoy them in at ground level with my buddy, Tony Treach. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. We are continuing our series here, recounting my trips this past fall, um, where I have been meeting up with different regional experts or subject experts or uh, different style of hunting experts and you know, spending a few days learning how they do what they do in this specific area and then trying it out myself. So I told a story in last week's episode about what I did in Washington, DC, learning how to hunt in the suburbs. Today, I want to tell you about another one of my hunts in which I went to Nebraska and met up with Tony Treach, who's a nomad of sorts. This is a guy who works during the winter, spring and summer so that he can take off all fall and hunt across the country, hunting public land, hunting knock on door stuff, hunting Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, Montana. I mean, Wyoming, all over the place, Kansas, um, chasing whitetails, elk, mule deer, everything. But when it comes to whitetails, he not only spends all this time living out in the land, chasing deer forever, but he does this on the ground decoying thing where he's holding or using a bow attached decoy and getting a buck to come right in and try to kick his ass, and then he shoots them before they do. That is what I wanted to learn about. That's what I wanted to try doing, and Tony Trich was the man to teach me. So in uh, the second week of November, I traveled out there to Nebraska, met up with Tony, and did it. Spent a day and a half with him, picking his brain about how he goes about this kind of hunt, watching as he does it himself, and then I went off on my own and tried for three, three and a half days on my own. Um, so Tony's going to hop on here with me in a minute and we're going to walk through kind of how he got into the style of hunting. We're going to talk about some of the high level strategy elements, the things that you need to be thinking about when trying to pull off a hunt like this. And then I'm going to walk through what I did day by day, decision by decision, encounter by encounter and detail how things went, what I did, and then have Tony kind of 
examine my decisions and what I tried to do and tell me if I did anything wrong, if there's things I could have done differently, um, et cetera. See if we can learn some stuff from this super crazy experience. I mean, this was some of the most fun I've ever had deer hunting. It really was. And um, also with me on the podcast here in a couple minutes will be Bobby Jarrig. He was one of the cameramen that was with me for this hunt. So he's going to give a second perspective and fact check me on stuff if necessary and kind of talk about the different things he saw too. So that's today's episode. A lot of fun. Um, this is something I will definitely be doing again, and I can't wait for you to hear the story and watch the episode next year. So without further ado, let's get to my chat with Tony and Bobby. All right. So joining me now on the line to continue this story is Tony Treach and Bobby Jarig. Thank you both for uh, making the time to get back together again and re- relive our Nebraska adventures. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Excited. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. So here's where I wanted to start. You know, when we, when we began this trip, we met up at a campground in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska. And I remember one of the first things I asked you, Tony, was how long have you been on the road for? Like how, how long have you been traveling so far this year? And it was just a ridiculous answer. <laughs> Tony, how yeah. long had you been? I know there was kind of back and forths, but how many days were you mm-hmm. on the road this late summer and fall? And, and where all did you hit mm-hmm. leading up to our trip? Wow. Uh, started, left Michigan, went to Nebraska. That would have been in August, early August. Uh, spent about a month there. You mean Nevada, uh, right? Exactly a month. What did I say? You said Nebraska, but I think you meant Nevada. <laughs> yeah, Nevada. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Nevada. And, uh, yeah, spent a month there, got a bowl, went to Colorado, uh, was there almost two weeks, got a bowl, went home, uh, did some work, actually spent some time at home in, in the month of September, which was a rarity. And then uh, back on the road in October to Wyoming for deer, help a buddy with a bison tag, mom, mom had a moose tag, did those, and then headed down to the plains to meet you guys. And I also had a, uh, uh, a buddy who had a Kansas tag that I helped with with and i had a colorado eastern plains uh deer tag so all in all it's probably just over three months on the road man that's uh like i was telling you i felt like i had been like a traveling vagabond this fall but when i hear about what you do it makes my uh makes my travel seem amateur so i've got i've got nothing on you that's uh i don't know uh, every time we we talked about it, I found myself having two equal feelings. Number one was a certain sense of jealousy, just like the freedom and adventure <laughs> you have when you get to go all these different places and spend that much time on the road. But then also dread. Like I can't imagine being gone that long and spending that much time on the road and how exhausting that must must be in certain <laughs> ways. Um, so you, you've got a, a really interesting, really interesting world you're living in there, man. Yeah, it's uh, it does it does it does burn you after a while. I mean, if if every hunt goes great, uh, and you know you're just riding the high from hunt to hunt, then it's it goes a lot faster and smoother. Um, but you throw in a couple hard hunts here or there, and or you know bad weather, hot weather, whatever things aren't going your way, and it it can become a drag. Um, just got to make sure too everything's uh, in line and functioning on the home front because the wife's not happy uh it wouldn't you know it wouldn't happen yeah. and if works if works 
if there's trouble at work, you know, it, it can turn into a disaster, but knock on wood, it's, everything's good. And um, as, as, of, as of right now, I'll still be allowed uh, from the wife to be able to do it again. Next year. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, something that I don't think I actually asked you about back in November that I meant to was quite simply why why do you why have you taken this to such a to, to this degree i mean there's a lot of guys that take a week maybe two weeks of vacation go hunting there's a lot of people that like to travel to hunt there's a lot of people that hunt a whole lot around home um but there are not many people that have gone as far as you have and and have really crafted your lifestyle to to do this to the extent that you have, I mean, that's a pretty unique thing. Um, when did you, when did you realize you wanted to go this far with it and, and why, like what was the impetus for, for really taking things to this very, very different level than most? It kind of, it kind of built up slowly. Uh, and it, and it didn't start by going out West and, and, you know, to the mountains and then to the plains. It started, uh, traveling to Illinois and sleeping at a farmer's barn for two weeks and then three weeks. And then we got permission to, hunt in Ohio, a buddy and I, and we, you know, we we'd spent a couple weeks there and then we drew Iowa and we'd spent a couple weeks there. And then I got invited to Kansas the first year. And all of a sudden now we're spending two weeks down there. And, you know, and I, I, I mean, I did the several trips or, you know, the, the basically the, you know, from the third week of October, all the way through November, travel in the Midwest before I got the bug from seeing all the mule deer in Kansas that I couldn't hunt. Um, because at first we were using rifles uh, there and non-resident can't hunt mule deer in Kansas with rifles. So I, it kind of got me the bug. Like I, I need to go further West where I can hunt for mule deer. And, and uh, then the elk bug bit me and it's just a, I'd already had my business kind of, you know, I'm a, a self-employed carpenter that has a, a handful of employees and uh, you know, but the customers that we work for know that we, you know, we, we basically fried carpentry labor. And when, fall's gone or the fall, the fall comes, I, we're going to be one guy short and I'm going to be gone. And, uh, you know, we do good enough work that I can kind of, you know, get what I want, uh, per se with that because, uh, yeah, the guys are really good and, uh, we get stuff done, but, the it just, it, it grew into what it is now slowly. And it, it you know, there's some areas that I, can hunt every year and I love to hunt and I don't want to give them up and I just keep adding those types of hunts to the list. And then occasionally you throw in a great tag, you, you come across. And so it just, it, it, and you know, if I was a better hunter, I'd probably get done earlier and I'd just shoot them on the first or second day and I'd be able to go <laughs> home once in a while, but it seems like I drag them out to the end of the season every time. Uh-huh. Although I feel like those times when you do kill on the first day, you have like a certain sense of, of loss that the hunt's already done, you know, that's oh, yeah. like, that's the weird catch 22. Oh, yeah. I've been in yep. that position. Yeah, before. So, oh, yeah. so then what about the decoying part of what you do? So, so if I were to oversimplify what I think about when I think about Tony Treach, you, <laughs> I think mm-hmm. about this public mm-hmm. land traveling nomad. And I think at least from the whitetail side of things, which is, you know, my particular interest, I think about, how you're doing this on the ground handheld decoy thing. You know, that was what I was really interested in picking your brain about. Um, now a couple of years ago we did podcasts where we talked about this pretty extensively. So we're, I don't want to cover every single little bit, but, but how did that come about for you? I remember you telling us a story 
back there in Nebraska that I thought was um, was eye opening. Can you can you get us up to speed on that? Like how this style of hunting became your style now moving forward? Yeah. So it, it, it was a necessity when I first started hunting Kansas. I mean, I was typical Midwestern, you know, guy. Yeah, I hunted, you know, grew up in Michigan hunting, and it's thicker and snot up here in northern Michigan. And you know, I went to Illinois where it was thick, and Iowa, you know, where it's you're hitting the, you know, hunting the river bottoms where it's thick. And it, I, got, I went to Kansas the first time we met the rancher. Uh, he wanted to give us a tour, kind of like, you know, well, here's the properties that I either own or rent, and you can can hunt these. And I mean, we stopped in the first place, intersection of four, you know, four county roads. And, and you can't, I can't see a tree. I can't see a bush. Like, I don't know how a, a jackrabbit could have hid out there. And I would just, I remember doing a 360 looking around like, well, I don't know what we're doing here. This is gonna be a waste of time. And by the end of that week, uh, we figured out that it's not as, it's not as flat and, and as it looks, it's not as, uh, empty as it looks. There's a lot of animals out there. Uh, and it's, but, but we had to hunt them differently. And that grew into, you know, traditional spot and stock is pretty tough in the plains because vision, you know, you can't see very well, but if you can get past that and you can stand enough on your truck, if you can climb on top of buildings or, you know, find what little high spots there are, you can get on them. And, and it's, it's not, it's not the easiest spot in stock hunting. It's a lot of crawling and it's, I mean, you, at the end of the day, you're just covered in dust and burrs. And, but what was happening was I was getting close to these bucks and then, you know, they're bedding in these grassy draws and these weedy draws. And when they stand up, you know, sometimes in order to have a shot, when they do stand up, you got to be pretty dang close. And sometimes it doesn't even matter. You, I mean, 10, 15 yards away. I think I told you a story about the biggest buck I've ever hunted in Kansas. I just didn't have a shot. I was 15 yards from him three different times. And I really didn't have a great shot uh, window any one of those times. So it got me thinking I needed something to hold them or, you know, bring them to me even better, you know, uh, once they did stand up. So I brought, I had an old Montana decoy that I, you know, like the full body silhouette uh, that I brought out one year and I was trying to use that and I, I brought the, the wrong legs. I also had the elk version and I brought the elk legs, which, you know, so I got a Joe decoy that's like standing three foot off the ground or four foot <laughs> off the ground. It was pretty funny. So I thought I was funny and I put a, a post on social media with that and Garrett Rowe, the owner of Heads Up Decoy actually called or, or messaged me and said, Hey, uh, we're based out of Western Kansas where yet and converse a little bit. And he's like, well, here, let's meet somewhere tomorrow and I'll set you up with my product and you can see what you think. Met him uh, at a you know uh, un- undisclosed intersection, and we he he helped me install the bracket on on my bow in front of or behind my uh, uh, stabilizer, and gave me a ground stake and a uh, brush clamp, and off I went. And the very next day, I killed a 185 inch whitetail with it, and that deer was coming at me, basically with its eyes rolled in the back of its head, and if if I hadn't shot it it might've taken the decoy and the bow right out of my hands. It was, I mean, it was coming for a fight and it, it, I, it basically, it basically solved the problem I had. Um, when I was able to sneak in now to the, to where they're at, where you have, and that's the key. You got to find them bedded. You got to be able to see where they're bedded. got to get in tight and then just, just wait, you can call them in too. And, and, and that's actually how that worked with that, that buck that, uh, I shot that day. But, um, 
the perfect situation that really is kind of foolproof is just getting in tight, show them the decoy and let them do their thing. But yeah. it, uh, it was out of necessity basically. Now what's like the prereq for this kind of hunt as <laughs> far as what kind of area, what, what kind of habitat do you think you need? And I guess there's a time of year prereq as well. Like what, what are the things that are absolute musts for someone to be in a situation to try this from your perspective? Yeah, well, this is obviously just my opinion, um, but I, I've never tried it outside of the rut, so I don't know how it worked. But I, you know, in the rut, the whitetails, <laughs> if the buck to doe ratio is, is at, at a healthy level and they're not just getting hammered by people and you know always on edge, they see another buck, they're going to come check it out. Uh, so the rut is a must, in my opinion. But maybe the most important thing is you've got to be able to see where they're sleeping. If you don't know where they're at, you're basically just still hunting with a decoy. Uh, and, you know, we all know how that's going to go. You know, you're 50, 50 at best of, uh, of you seeing them before they see you as you're creeping through where they're bedded. So being able to see them in their beds, uh, is absolutely the most important thing. And then you can put together a plan of how to get close as close as you can. Uh, do you want to try to call them or get their attention to see the decoy or do you want to let them see it on their own? You know, you, once you, once you have them bedded, in a spot that you can hunt it you know it's uh it's over really it's, it, unless you mess up you know something but there you're going to have a great opportunity if you can find a bedded yeah i um uh, it's interesting that was like the ideal scenario you kept telling us about and unfortunately i was only able to get that specific scenario one time which I'll, I'll get to, I'll describe that to you in a little bit here in the story. But, um, but even though I didn't have that specific thing work out, it was wild how many different almosts occurred still without that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't mm-hmm. even told you all these stories yet, Tony. So I'm excited for you to hear how specifically some of this went because, um, what you told me was that this would be some of the most intense fun hunting I've ever experienced. And even though I didn't have an ideal scenario in a lot of ways, I still think that proved to be true. I mean, Bobby, from your perspective, watching what, what we're about to talk about, I mean, this is some wild stuff, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, man, it was exciting. It was just when the action was happening, it was just bucks everywhere running around. And I kind of had a unique position watching sort of up above you for most of it. So I was just, it was like, my heart was beating just just watching it from afar. So, yeah, I can't can't imagine what you are feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, it's nuts being at ground level, getting in close to one of these deer like this. Um, but it starts with the spotting one, and I guess that's maybe where mm-hmm. we should pick it up. Which was that first night we got together, and we were going to go find a high spot and do some glassing and try to get eyes on something. Um, mm-hmm. We were hunting some public land in Nebraska. Uh, you had got there a day earlier or, or yeah, I think the day before and had done some glassing. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then we got together and, and got up high and looked around what, from your perspective, when you're beginning a hunt like this, you're just trying to get eyes on something at that point in the hunt, the very beginning, what was it that you were really trying to do? Were you trying to find a buck to actually stalk that night or was it just, let's see if there's anything worth hunting here at all, like an inventory type thing. Was that more so what you were doing? Yeah, no, I, I think we needed to find out where 
where they were moving through in there because that was a little bit thicker than than what we you know what the ideal terrain would probably be you know, with that with the river bottoms and the thick feeders in the bottoms you know my idea was that probably if, if they have that available to them a lot of times they will use it so you know a lot the spots i look for they don't have those options so they have they're forced to be in the open uh so yeah i figured if we could figure out where they're moving through in there um and at least get an idea of you know what the what the daily patterns are we can maybe intercept them or call them in or just get in their way and uh and again they were ruddy i mean we saw bucks that were that were ruddy and cruising and i think if we had gotten in the right situation it would have worked uh but yeah just trying to just trying to basically figure out what's going on there take the kind of the the pulse of that, that area. Yeah. So we watched that night and saw quite a few does on the public land, but didn't see any good bucks. So we did see two bucks that we thought might be mature mm. across the valley on private land. Um, mm-hmm. But that was essentially the extent of night number one. It was just, I don't know, hour something like that, hour and a half, maybe glassing up there and yeah, just kind of got the lay of the land a little bit. And then we decided to go out the mm-hmm. next morning and, you know, my goal with this was just to follow you and see what you do and how you do it and, and pick your brain on, on all things when it comes to this style of hunting. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we, we did a bunch of hiking around and we saw a bunch of does and probably the highlight was we came up this ridge. We were working our way up a hill and just as we approached the crest, I saw a deer silhouetted on another ridge line across the valley. And it was a decent buck. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Do you want to walk through, Tony, what what your thought process once we spotted that buck was and how you thought we could maybe <laughs> make a play on him? Yeah. Well, the wind was wind was at 90 degrees at best. So we, you know, it kind of depended on which way he turned. But when he disappeared over that, you know, coming our way over that ridge top and went down in the valley, I thought if we could set up on the, on the top edge, get a decoy up in front of us, and it might just, suck him right in if and, you know at worst he's going to circle around you know to, to see to see what we are because they act differently if they have a door or they don't have a dough if he's got a dough he's coming at you he's gonna he, he's defending that dough he's gonna try to fight but if he doesn't have the dough he's not just gonna go stumbling in there he wants to check and swing around and get a kind of a pulse of to what, what's going on he, he wants to figure out before he gets just flies in there and gets his his butt whooped uh what he's what he's dealing with so i was hoping he would when he'd see that decoy uh, silhouette on our ridge, he would just come right to us, or at worst, like I said, downwind or uh, quartering towards the wind downwind side. So he ended up just disappearing, though. He never did do that. We yeah. never, never did <laughs> end up seeing him. Um, and it, you know, for a second there, I thought, you know, th- this actually might work. I think we did a little rattling. Did you rattle on that one? Did we try rattling? Oh, I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Because we wanted to. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he was going to hang out down there and lay down, and I just wanted him to, to. I wanted to look up there. So yeah. So in that situation where you're getting eyes on a cruising buck, you said it's you know it's different than a buck with a doe. It's not necessarily defending the doe. He's going to try to scope out the situation. Do you do mm-hmm. anything different in that scenario when it's a cruising buck on his own? As far as when you want to deploy the decoy, as far as how close you try to get to him. Uh, anything else? I mean, like you said, they're more apt to circle downwind. Um, what else factors in when you've got that scenario? Because that ended up being the scenario that I had a lot, um, more so than bucks of the does. Yep. Well, it's it usually doesn't happen. I can say that right now because I usually don't. 
you know, the bucks I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hunt and kill, uh, are, are going to be the most mature and dominant bucks in the area. So in November, there's always going to be a hot doe somewhere. He's going to be the one with her. So I hardly ever, I mean, I've had all, all kinds of bucks that I don't want to kill, uh, as I'm moving in, come and see me. And I usually let them see me and hope they run the other way. It depends on, I guess, on which side of me they are compared to the buck that I'm trying to move in on. But I don't, I can't think of any, maybe one situation where I've had a really big buck. Uh, as I'm moving, you know, like, you know, basically in or still hunting an area, I saw him and was able to kind of move in and use a decoy. You typically, uh, it, it's not happening. And I'm waiting until he's, he's better with her. But I, but from the experience I've had with those those subordinate bucks that are just cruising around, um, it's kind of a crapshoot because again you're moving and there's you it's a fifty fifty shot at best that you're going to see them before they see you, uh, and you don't want to just be walking around with a decoy you know stuck to each shoulder and in front and behind you so you look like a deer from all four sides. I mean someone's going <laughs> to bad bad things are going to happen. Uh-huh. So I just don't know how there, there's a lot of things that could go wrong with that. I just don't, uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise, I'd say it'd be a last case scenario where you're moving and trying to pick up other moving bucks too. But, yeah. uh, but I, I, I think, you know, in that case, you does allow you a little bit more of a, a little more time because, you know, you know, even if they see you and, and I've had this happen at bucks and does, they, you know, I'm walking in and, or walking even to a glassing point and, and a group of does picks me off. And I, you know, like I hunker down real quick and pick up the, and just pull up the decoy and they might, you know, I've had them just blow out. I've had them stand there and stomp and then go back to feeding. I've had them try to walk right to me. I've had a little bit of everything. So it does sometimes allow you a little bit more, you know, like a get out of jail free card. Uh, if, if you, if something does see you, but again, it's, you're not putting the odds in your favor by, by, by using it that way. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Um, so then what about, the the whole situation with calling because sometimes I know you talked about that's a way that you can kind mm-hmm. of when things aren't perfectly working out in your favor you can't go quite close enough or you know maybe you haven't spotted a buck with a doe but you find a brushy nasty looking area you'll try some stuff like that mm-hmm. could you elaborate a little bit on how how calling might fit into some of these circumstances that you you'll sometimes try sure it's not it's not much any different really than than any other time you're going to be rattling or, or calling, you know, trying to create a scenario to, to lure a buck in. But what you're, what you're giving them is a, a visual, uh, to add to the, the lure. And the one thing that, uh, the handheld decoys, I think offers you over like a stationary, and don't get me wrong, I've used them together too. Like I've used, you know, I, my dad last year killed his biggest white tail in Kansas and he had both. He had the, a hands up, uh, you know, a, a heads up decoy in his hand that he could flash the button and give that motion to, and that motion sometimes is key. Uh, and then he also had a stationary little buck out in front of him. But ha- having that ability to to just, you know, raise the raise the buck decoy, lower the buck decoy, um, is sometimes all they need because you know we've all seen the, the white tail buck, you know, the sees comes in, you're rattling, he stops at 150, 200 yards, and he just stares at you, stares at you and just does not move for, you know, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just, just does not move. If you give him that last little piece of the pie, like there's stuff going on over here. You know, he can hear it. He can, you know, he, well, hopefully he can't smell it, but he, he, if he can just see it, yeah. 
something that makes them think, mm, I got to get over there and check that out. Yep, it's happening. I think uh, it's helped me a lot in that way. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Let's fast forward from that first morning we spent together. You know, it was, it was a lot of glassing, hiking. We saw that buck, saw some doe, saw a couple other bucks way off in the distance on some private land. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically coming out of that day, we decided, you know what, you know, we probably want to move on to something different. Um, now I had thought we, we, one of the guys in our crew had been able to chat with a neighbor on some of that private land. And it sounded like we might be able to get permission to hunt those fields where we saw the good bucks the night before, but that ended up yep. falling through. So you mm. were going to head to Colorado and we were going to keep hunting. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to keep hunting on my own. And so I decided to pull the plug on this first spot and go check out this other piece of public land that I thought had potential. Um, I, you had talked in the past about, you know, how you move around a lot when you're hunting like this, this way, you have a lot of different locations. Can you speak to just a little bit about your perspective on how long you'll give a zone or a piece of property or a public parcel before you decide, nah, it's not for me and, and move on? Cause because we, I basically gave this, you know, a night in the morning plus the evening before scouting that you did, and you know, within that day and a half of not seeing what we're looking for, I decided to get out of Dodge. But what else are you thinking about when making those kinds of decisions? Well, first off, you got to find terrain that's 
you, if you can't if you can't see them where they're sleeping, you're you're behind eight ball already. It's going to be tough to tough to to put the scenario together, you know, and make it work if you if you if you can't bed them. If you, if you're not able to find where they're sleeping, where they're bedded, it's going to be tough. Um, so I look for those areas. I, I you know I want to be able to get to high points uh, and be able to find deer in their beds or go into their beds and then you know that's that's really everything so after two uh, you know a night i guess i was there the day before so i had two nights and two evenings in that area i mean i think you had asked me one time what would i do and i it was very i mean it was no hesitation it's like i'm out this is this area is well there are bucks there i mean and decent you know uh nebraska public land bucks but i you know, I, they're, you're you're better off. You'd have been better off uh, hanging a set, uh, or or using your saddle, or whatever your little uh, hunting them in a different way. Yeah, in one of those little bottoms there. So to do what we wanted to do, uh, yeah, I was all about moving. And that you know, the area you had described uh, to the north a little bit there sounded promising. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I decided to do. Um, me and Bobby and Tyler load up the truck and just hightailed it to get out of there and try to get to this new spot while we'd still have a little bit of daylight so we could glass this area. And this, this new area is going to head to was big open prairie Hills. And then there was a river bottom that went down through the middle of all this prairie and and I knew that there would probably be a good amount of whitetail action in that river bottom, and I thought they might come up into the grassy hills too. And I figured between those two things, we would you know be able to have some degree of visibility and be able to use the decoy. That was my hope. Um, now the mm-hmm. one limiting factor was was that I, I wasn't sure if they would use the hills and the grassy area as much. I knew they would use the river bottom. Now the thing about this piece of public was that was only a little knob that went into the river that was actually public probably mm-hmm. i don't know less than 40 acres might have been 20 25 30 oh, acres something like that that was in the river bottom now there was thousands and thousands of the prairie stuff around it though so that was what i was working with and my plan was to hightail it I dr- we drove way down these back road two track things to get to this little area that i thought would have white tails me bobby and tyler went. Yeah, that's a long way it was. And then uh, where we hiked, we had to leave our vehicle one place and then hike in like a mile or so to get to the river from the farthest we could get with the truck. Um, Bobby, how, <laughs> how, how'd you feel about my hike, my walking? You, you guys had some opinions on my walking to our <laughs> hunt location. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Me and uh, Tyler, the other uh, camera guy, we, we definitely kept up, but we were like, jogging at Mark's uh, <laughs> walking stride. I think we had both commented on how he should look into competitive speed walking and <laughs> distance walking. Um, but yeah, it was like a long sandy double track and we were moving. We were cruising, trying to get there before it got dark. And to make a long story short, that first night we got there in time to probably sit for, what would you say, Bob, like an hour, 45 minutes, something like that of daylight. Yeah. No more than an hour. I wouldn't think. And so we got up on this hill that overlooked the river bottom. And from this ridge, you could see a long distance. I mean, you could see a lot of the hills on the opposite side, which was private land. And then you could see the river bottom right beneath us that was public. And then more river on either side or more bottom that was 
private as well. So that was the the good thing is that it was a lot of good looking country. The bad thing was that there was just a small part that we could actually hunt. Um, so I when I got there and was kind of looking at what we could see, and I was thinking, okay, uh, this could maybe work, but. The big thing is like, will these bucks come on the public side? Um, all the private stuff looked great. There was just this one little kind of peninsula that was actually accessible by us. Would they would they be in there and or would they be up in the prairie hills behind us that would give us lots of options? And long story short is that that, that hour of glassing that night, we had two things confirmed. Number one, we saw bucks. We saw like a really nice tight and tall eight-pointer on the private land across the river, like definite mature really nice buck, like very, very tall. Um, like, I don't know, 12, 13 inch G threes and twos. Um, but tight, mm. like maybe 12, 13 inches wide. Um, but a super cool buck. And, um, then it last light, like right at dark, I saw a buck directly underneath us on the public land. He popped out of some cedars and was walking directly underneath us, but it was like shooting light ended like right as I was seeing this buck or was going to end in just like a minute or two. And so I remember looking at him, I was like, gosh, is there any chance that we could make a play on him in like the next 60 seconds to two minutes? And just there, there wasn't a way it would work. Um, but seeing a good shooter buck, like a 130 class buck, maybe, you know, somewhere in that ballpark, um, that moved on the public land made me think, okay, we have a chance here. And basically my idea, once I saw this landscape in person, and then the next morning when we returned, it seemed like this was the situation we would have. It was going to be a little bit different than what you do, Tony, um, Mm -hmm. just by necessity of what we had to work with. We just didn't have a lot of ground where these whitetails were, but I could see like there was a lot of whitetails using this river bottom. And by staying up high on these you know, on, on, on the side of the valley, you could look down and see quite a bit of country. There was these scattered pockets of cedars and then meadows and open grassy stuff. So my thought was if we sit up on these kind of glassing knobs and wait, if we spot a buck come onto the public, I bet I'd have time to drop down the side of the ridge, get into the bottom and get into position to intercept. It. And so I was going to Kind of, you know, hope for a situation where I saw a buck locked on a doe and watch him bed. Um, but if not, maybe I could intercept a buck like what I saw that first night. Um, and so that's what we decided to try on the next day when I went back to actually hunt. Um, we hiked in there, you know, before first light, got to that glassing knob overlooking the valley. Um, and, and just figured we'd post up and watch. And we ended up shifting our glassing location. I don't know, Bobby, what do you think? Maybe... 150, 200 yards yeah, down, maybe a couple hundred yards. Yeah. We found this spot where basically we had the best visibility of the entire peninsula that was public while also being able to see a lot on the private. And, um, is that the day you forgot your, uh, your stuff? <laughs> I don't know. There's been so many times this happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that was it. I, I got all the way. So the mile hike to the river bottom, I get there, it's almost daylight, and then I realize I didn't have my rangefinder or my binoculars and something else. I can't remember what it was. And I just thought, man, I don't I don't want to be here all day without my rangefinder, without binos. Like we're just doing glassing all day. Um so I literally ran in this case. I ran a mile back to the truck to get my stuff and then ran all the way back to try to get to the glassing knob before shooting light. Um I forgot about that, Bobby. That was miserable. Nice. nice. <laughs> I think I, I think I made it like just a little after shooting light. I didn't miss too much. Um, 
Yeah, it wasn't bad. But it was a suffer fest of a of a trail run in my hunting <laughs> gear and all that stuff. But uh but you know, that first day it was still like questionable if it was gonna work. Like we could see a good area and we were seeing deer, but most of them were on the private. I mean, I think if I recall right, Bobby, that first morning we did see one like decent buck. And and I, I should add here that given the fact that I only really had three days to hunt, um, my standards were much lower than, you know, what I would use on what I would be shooting for most hunts and, you know, very different than yours, Tony. So in this case, I was thinking, you know what, I'd love to shoot a mature buck, like a three, four plus year old deer, but to pull it off on any deer, you know, like a two year old or anything like that would be pretty sweet just to pull it off. So I decided, you know, that second day that I'm just going to try to get anything and just see, you know, if maybe we can get a younger buck curious with it enough. Um, and I guess that was something that we talked about a little bit. You've seen that usually these big mature bucks locked on does are the ones that are most apt to respond to the decoy. But what do you think about, was I, was I stupid to try to do this on two year old bucks or three year old bucks or younger? Oh no, no. I've, there's been lots of situations where, like I said, when I'm moving in and I see a little buck or if even, even like 140 class whitetail is just, you know, only a three-year-old or something that I just don't want to kill. And I'll show them the, I'll use the decoy just to keep them from, from blowing out because maybe they're too close to the, you know, the buck I want and they'll just come right over to you, but they're, they just, they just do it in a different manner. They're not coming over there to kick your ass. They're just coming there to see what you are. Yeah. And I mean, I've had lots of them, uh, and I've, and I usually try to record it of my phone just cause it's hilarious, but they'll just, I mean, they'll get right on top of you. Like I've had them, I, I don't even know how many I've had within 10 feet and they're, and they get to a point where it's like, they want, they're like, they're, they kind of get pissed because like move, you're like, you're not doing anything. <laughs> like, like, show me something, you know, do something. And, and then usually they, they always circle down when, when that happens and then they just, you know, it blow up. Yeah. Well, as soon as they hit that, that scent, but, but those, those two and a half and even some three and a half, when that happens, they, you know, they, they get tight, they walk up and they blow up and then they'll almost always stop. They run, but they, in the back of their mind, like, but, but that was a deer. And they'll almost always stop in like 30, 40, 50 yards and turn around and look back. Like, are you sure you're a human? Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, if you really want them, you, you, you could have them. Yeah. But, uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I kind of want to fast forward to some of my close encounters to see what you think about what I did and how they turned out. Cause, cause what you're describing here is, is pretty similar to some of the stuff I saw. Um, you know, that, that day, I guess to, to hit fast forward, basically I did see one good buck come on the public land, not a big, big one, but like a two year old, two year old probably. And I snuck down to the bottom and tried to get ahead of where I thought he was going and he never popped out. So then I tried rattling, never popped out. Um, he just disappeared. So I went back up to the top and then later, like a half hour later, something else like a, an even smaller buck popped out was down in the bottom where I thought we definitely could intercept him. And so I figured, well, we'll at least try just to see what happens. So I went down on that one and he did end up popping out, saw the decoy, um, but just stared at it for a while and just didn't like it. And he went off the other direction. Um, that was the extent of like the encounters that first day, like on the public land, but we did have a lot of excitement like midday, like noon on the private land, Mm -hmm. like just across the river. I looked across and saw 
some white tails, pull out the binos, and there's a buck and another buck and another buck and another buck. And it being six bucks on a doe and wow. just full-blown rut fest. And one of them was that really tight, really tall one. And another one was like a solid, like four-year-old type 130-something type buck. And then a couple like nice, you know, smaller two- or three-year-old deer. Um, and they were just getting after it. The bucks were tussling. Mm-hmm. There was like one guy that was in charge with the doe, of course, and he was fending off all the other, all the other uh, people trying to get in on his girl. And then they were running all over the place. And so I made a move down there to, to get as close as I could get to it, just in case they happened to cross the river in the public. But in that situation, they just never did. Um, but it was cool mm-hmm. to see them and cool to see that was going on. And I was just thinking, man, if 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 only this could happen on my side of the river. I'd actually have a chance maybe. Um, mm-hmm. So now fast forward to the next day. We, I saw one, I saw those deer cruising. I saw that big eight pointer again later that day cruising on the private, but had no actual huntable deer. Go back the next morning, get back to that glassing knob at first light. And right at first light, basically what we did is we would get to the ridge and stay on the backside of it until you could actually see. And then once it was shooting light, I'd pop over the edge so we could see down it. And um, you know, that way we wouldn't be spooking anything before we could see it was down there. Get over the edge, look down. And in the bottom right beneath me is a shooter like right away on public land. There's a buck right there. Um, do you remember this moment? Like what, what Bobby, what were you thinking in that moment when I peeked over the edge? I'm like, shooter buck right there. We got to go. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was exciting. It was just like, Oh crap, here we go. And it was, it was just like barely legal light and barely enough light for the cameras to, even pick anything up, but, um, I managed to sneak over when you guys dropped down and get a good look at it. And, um, it was like right there. It was pretty cool. It was nuts. So basically that deer, when we spotted it was maybe a hundred yards away, but down on the bottom. And, you know, we were, I don't know how high we were up, maybe a hundred feet of elevation, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, if that. Yeah, and so what I needed to do was take basically I, I had you, Bobby, stay up top. You had a long lens, like zoom camera lens on your camera. So what we ended up doing, uh, Tony, was Bobby ended up staying up high and filming from a distance, and then Tyler would be with me close, and we would go in on these stalks, mm-hmm. and then Bobby would film from up there. So me and Tyler navigated down into like a little tight coulee of sorts, like just a little tight draw that had cedars in it where I could slip into mm-hmm. that. And, and get to the bottom without this buck being able to see us. So I do that. We sneak down the hill, get down to the bottom. We peek out around these cedars into the open meadow where that buck is. And by the time I got there, that buck was moving. And I just was able to catch him like walking away, just getting behind the next row of cedars. Like, I don't know, he was probably 100, 100 yards away from me now at that point, maybe a little bit more, walking away and had gone behind this line of trees. So like I described, there's like a hundred yard meadow now between where I was and where he was. So my thought process in this moment is, okay, I need to get his attention somehow and I need to get him to come back into this opening. And if I can do that, and if I'm set up in the right way, he might pop back out, see the decoy and come in. So I Mm -hmm. sprinted into the meadow and wanted to close as much of that distance as I possibly could. So I think I had like maybe 50, 60 yards that I could cover until I got to the last little isolated tree. And there was like one cedar in the middle of that meadow. So I thought if I can run to that cedar, you know, I'll be pretty close to where that buck disappeared. 
I'll get there, throw the decoy up, and then I'll rattle, and maybe he'll come back. And so that's what I did. Ran across the meadow, got to the cedar, popped up the decoy in front of me, had Tyler, you know, kind of hunker down behind me as well. We were tight up against that cedar and had the decoy, you know, pointed, you know, it was facing right towards where I last saw the deer. Get out the antlers, start cracking the antlers together. And within 30 seconds, a minute, maybe something like that of rattling. Here comes that buck running at me, Hmm. comes busting out of those cedars, comes running right out. And as soon as he sees the decoy, he stops and he bristled up, pinned his ears back and was doing the thing. (laughs) And so I'm like, my gosh, like this is actually going to happen. He is pissed. Yeah, he came in. Down. Yeah. I mean, it really felt like it does. And, and I was, you know, I was, had my arrow knocked. I was clipped on. I was ready. And I just remember thinking in my head, okay, this buck's going to, you know, roll his eyes back and he's going to come on in on a death march and I'm going to get a shot. Now, here's what he did, though, that was a little bit different, Tony. And I'm wondering if I should have done anything different or if this is just the situation and it was out of my control. He circled. From that point, instead of coming directly on, he circled. And as you kind of mentioned with these cruising bucks, he circled downwind and never came within 40 yards. And I was fresh off of having missed a buck like three days earlier. And so I was telling myself, I'm not going to shoot like a long shot. I want like an easy, no brainer shot at one of these bucks. And I kept thinking, you know, you're talking about these bucks will come to 20 or 15 or 10 coming in. So I'm ranging him Mm -hmm. at like 43, 42. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not taking that shot, but I, I could have, I mean, he was broadside circling and, um, mm. and he just ended up getting just a little bit too tight to where our wind was blowing. And he, <clears throat> he buggered out of there before I expected him to do that. Mm-hmm. And he was out now it could have been cause yeah. of that wind swirled a little bit, or I also, he's circled enough that, you know, the decoy was no longer blocking us entirely. You know, he could see now us profiled behind it. Um, so one of those two things I think spooked him. Would you have done, like, should I have tried to grab the decoy and move it? Should I have done anything different in that scenario, do you think? So, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. He was circling because he doesn't have anything to protect. He's coming into a situation. He's just trying to survey it to, to figure out what he's up against. Uh, that's the difference between a buck with a doe and a buck without a doe. But... Yeah, when I when they when they do circle me, I, you know, if it's not windy, I got that thing on my bow. Um, but I also, and this is much easier with one person than it is two. And I I figured this out in Colorado and Kansas this year myself while I was filming. But when they're moving in, you know, when a doe or a buck has seen you and is coming, just like just kind of curious, and they're moving, it's real easy for one person to to shuffle and just kind of in that grass, just, you know, you're, you're hunkered down, you're on your knees and you're just moving in, right, moving in, right, moving in, right. And you reach up and you just slowly turn that decoy and you literally just stay, uh, you know, you know, 180 degrees behind, you know, from him behind that, behind that decoy and they're expecting movement. So then it doesn't, it doesn't spook them, but, uh, but with two people, that is a lot harder game to play and you really got to, you know, it's, 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 you better be a good dance partner, uh, yeah. which I, which I'm sure Bobby was, but, but yeah, I, I would definitely move it. I wouldn't necessarily like replay restake it, but I'd be pivoting the decoy towards them and I'd be moving to stay behind, you know, keep the decoy in between us. Yeah. But if, if I'd have been behind Bobby there with you when he was 42 yards out, I'd be like, kill him now. If he's not, <laughs> yeah. you kill him now. 
because he doesn't have a door to protect. He's not coming there to kick your butt. He's coming in to find out what's going on. Yeah. And, and I and, and the first thing they're going to do is circle down with. Yep. And I kept thinking, he'll come closer. He'll come closer. But he didn't. <laughs> Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. So that was that was disappointing. Yeah, the end of the game. Yeah, it was disappointing, but it was still... like I, I remember I was thrilled that we actually had like a buck mm-hmm. see the decoy, came <laughs> in, sort of did the thing. Like It was intense. Like That was that was a blast just having that happen. So, so then me and Tyler bombed back up to the top of the ridge where Bobby was and we got set up. We actually moved to our main glassing knob then at that point. So we get to the, to the main glassing knob and we didn't sit down for more than a couple minutes, maybe, maybe less. And all of a sudden, I mean, who, who spotted that buck first, Bobby? I don't remember how it happened. I just remember someone was like, Ooh, there's another buck. Yeah, I, I, I think you might have seen him out across the river over there. Yeah, so basically right where I had been five, ten minutes earlier, on the other side of the river, though. So basically there was, there was a peninsula. Like, imagine there's a river that's, like, making S-bends, and we're on one of the little peninsulas that stick out, and then on the other side of the river, where the other cro- across the middle of the S, here's this other peninsula of private land over there, and I look over there and I see a buck. It's a good one. And then I see another buck and then I see another buck and then I see another buck. And I realize it's another 
situation where there's a hot doe and every buck in town is locked on her right in that spot. Hmm. Again, though, other side of the river. So I can't get to them. In this case, I figure, well, I got to be in, the, I got to get over there just in case. So me and Tyler drop back down to the bottom, sneak as close as we can get. I get basically to the last little cedar tree before the meadow drops down into the river and they're on the other side of it. And there ended up being like a really nice, super solid nine pointer, definitely like four or older. And then, uh, three like bucks. It could be two or three year olds and then a year and a half old. And that big one was in this nasty thick stuff on the point extending into the river with that doe and every buck would make a move in there and then he would run them off. Another buck would come in, he'd run them off. Another buck would come in, he would run them off. Um, and I just kept thinking, man, this would be so perfect if I could hunt that. Like if I could get over there, it was that kind of scenario where he would have seemingly would have charged in if I were to somehow get close enough with that decoy. Um, but I just couldn't, I tried like, I thought maybe I could get one of the satellite bucks to come over and investigate. Maybe they would tire of that and pop over on my way. So I popped the decoy up a couple times when the younger bucks were looking, but no takers, but I kept waiting and waiting and hoping like maybe we'll just get lucky. Maybe we'll get lucky and that doe will scoot out of there. If that doe scoots out of there and if somehow we get lucky enough that they come to our side, you know, I'll make a move on them. And so me and Tyler sat there for, I don't know, half hour or something like that. And then sure enough, that doe all of a sudden squirted out of that pocket. And then it just became like chaos broke loose. All those bucks were mm. sprinting after her and she's running in circles and they're all running behind her. And then sure enough, she jumps in the river and comes across to my side. And so as soon as I see her run to the river, I jump up out of my hide. I run to the edge of the river to be able to see where they're going. Now, Tyler, the cameraman's like grabbing all this stuff, trying to get ready. Like we gotta go, we gotta go. So as soon as it looked like they're crossing the river and I could see where they're going to come in, we start sprinting down our side to try to intercept them. And I get around this patch of cedars. And by the time I get around this, I don't know, like, uh, I maybe it was like ran like 40, 50 yards around this little clump of cedars to the next meadow. As I was getting around that, those deer popped up out of the river into the meadow with me. And that doe is barreling right at me, sprinting at me. <laughs> she gets, she comes running past those bucks are behind her. And I put the decoy. I'm trying to remember what I did here. I guess I, I, I'm pretty sure I popped the decoy up as I came around the corner. Cause I saw the deer coming through, but that doe was running right at me. And then she veered off to the left disappeared with several of the bucks behind her. But then I saw a couple of the bucks run back the other way. So then I was confused. Like, did they see me and spook or was that just what she was doing? And then these other bucks broke the other direction. It just felt like kind of a chaotic moment, but everything was gone. It was like, they're all there. They sprinted towards me and then they're all gone in just, just a matter of seconds. And this, this meadow was maybe, I don't know, like a hundred yards wide. And they peeled off in two different directions. One dropped in the river. The other ones dropped into this other patch of cedars. So I wait there for a while wait there for a while. Nothing's popping out. So I just said, okay, let's, let's go back to where we just were, grab my backpack and my other things. And then we'll, we'll move back into another position where we can get a better view again, get higher, get a survey, surveil the situation, try again. As we get back to my backpack, a buck goes running by like 70 yards away. Not a big one, but this buck is just like, just seems like in a panic looking for those does, but doesn't know where they are. You could just kind of tell by the way he was running. He was running around, stopping and looking, running around, stopping and looking. He cruises way off. He gets like 200 yards away by the time. And I'm like, you know what? What the heck? Maybe if this, if we could somehow get this buck, I'll, I'd take a crack at him. He wasn't a big one. He was a tight, 
eight pointer, you know, probably probably a good year and a half old or a lousy two year old. I don't know. But I just rattled my antlers together and from two hundred and fifty yards away or whatever, he spins around and starts sprinting all the way back the way he came, ends up running all the way to me and sees my decoy, but he had run with a he'd run head on and there was a barbed wire fence between me and him and he was just beneath a hill and all you could see was his neck and all like his chest was beneath the hill. So I could basically see half of his neck and his head and barbed wire across it staring at me. And if I had a clean shot at him, I probably would have taken him, but that just did not look like a good shot to me, basically aiming beneath his face. <laughs> so he mm-hmm. ended up, yeah, right. he ended up jumping the fence, but circling around out of range and just kind of continuing his run trot. He didn't really spook, but it was like, he saw the decoy. It was like, Whoa, what's that? And then ah, still looking for my doe kept running. So I go back up to the knob now after that happens. Get to the knob. I wasn't back at the knob there with you, Bobby, for 60 seconds or so <laughs> when all of a sudden, oh, yep. there's bucks again. Back down in the bottom at the end of the point, we saw one of these bucks that had been with like the little rut fest group that I was originally with you know, 20 minutes earlier. So I watched these deer. I see the big nine. I see one of the two-year-olds. And then coming out on the private side, I see like a big buck, um, different category than the other ones we've been looking at. This was like, if he was a 10 pointer, he'd be 150 for sure. Um, but he was an mm. eight and as an eight, you know, still, you know, mid one forties or bigger. Um, I mean, he was a big buck and so I'm stoked. So I'm standing up there glassing. I see the big nine. I see the big eight. Um, I'm watching them, but they're on the private land side. And then I don't know why, but the big eight crosses the river and pops up onto our side. All the other bucks are on the other side, but for some reason, the big guy comes over on my side. And I was kind of shocked that this, that was actually going to happen. Like the one that I really would love to get a crack at happens to come to our side, seemingly not with the doe. Um, like it seemed like the doe and all the other bucks were on the other side still. So I didn't understand that. Um, but here he is. He pops over to our side and now he's in like a, I don't know, like a 150 yard wide by 150 yard wide type meadow. And then there was a patch of cedars that was maybe like an acre or maybe two acres of cedars. And then there was another big meadow. And my thought was that if I could run down through the first meadow and get into those cedars, I would try to sneak to the edge of the cedars while he was still in that first meadow. And then hopefully see where he's headed, pop the decoy up and either grunt or rattle and get him to spot the decoy and come in. That was my hope. So I slipped down at the bottom with Tyler. Bobby's up top filming. Um, and basically I first tried to move to the river and see if I could work the river's edge because the way the wind was blowing, it was, if I remember this right, it was kind of, it was blowing towards the river a little bit, but up. And I was hoping if I stayed right in the river's edge, I could keep my wind blowing out over the water and edge my way all the way up to where that metal was and be undetected wind wise. But I couldn't, it would end up being like impenetrable thick. And so then I had to circle back into the cedars. And at this point, you know, I, I couldn't see the meadow, couldn't see where that buck was, but it had been, I don't know. A couple minutes, a minute max, or something. I don't know. I don't know what it actually was, but I feel like we sprinted down there fast. Now, Bobby, what did you see 
from the moment when me and Tyler bombed off the ridge, what did you see happen from your position? Because you stayed up high watching from the bird's eye view. Yeah, I did. I remember uh, we saw the big guy come over the river and straight across that meadow, and then you guys dropped down, and then a couple other bucks followed him across, and there was some some running back and forth. Um, But then once you guys got into that thick cedar patch, um, I couldn't really see much much going on, so just watched. And, um, yeah, I don't think I saw the big one until later after you guys had gone down there. But, um, yeah, I was just kind of trying to listen through the microphone and anxiously hear what was going on. It's exciting. Yeah. So the big guy, last I saw, he was in the meadow. I get into the cedars and my thought is I'm going to sneak quietly through these cedars up to the edge. I get into the first little pocket of cedars and I'm coming around a corner of a tree. And as I'm coming around the corner of the tree, that buck pops around the other corner already in the cedars 15 yards away from me, something like that. And there's like a little rise in the land right there. And I just remember like whisper yelling at Tyler, like buck, 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 get down. And we both like collapsed to the ground. And there's this little, like I said, this little rise in between me and him. So by dropping down, we actually slipped out of view. So as, as I'm dropping down, I remember sticking the decoy down on the ground in front of my face. As I'm dropping to the ground, I'm, on my knees, huddling behind the decoy, kind of laying down as flat as I can, grabbing an arrow out of the out of the quiver, knocking the arrow, clipping on my release. As I slowly start to rise, I can see the buck walking straight at me. The buck's coming hmm. head on at us. He's at ten yards. He's hmm. you know at eight yards, and I rise up and I start drawing back. He gets to five yards, and I'm like three quarters <laughs> away drawn back. He stops and blows out i mean he's mm. right there and before i can get back to anchor he boogered now in that situation do you think i mean i remember you telling me that you should like i shouldn't worry about drawing behind that thing i shouldn't worry about moving behind that thing just do your thing and they'll usually mm-hmm. let you get away with it um mm-hmm. Would you have done what I did, which was basically slap the decoy down and try to get a shot off in that case? Or should I have got the decoy down and just waited? Um, do you think it was just the nature of the beast with that there being a cameraman behind me too and just like too much going on to actually get away with it? It's hard to say what he caught and what uh, – I don't know if, if it was – the wind was swirling or maybe smelled you. Usually they don't – if they blow up and just take off and don't even bother to look back, they smell, they, they smell me. Um, if they see something they don't like, they still think you're a deer. I mean, he didn't walk the five yards without being 100% convinced you're another buck. Yeah. So I, that it's, it's hard to, it's, it's, this is hard to believe if you haven't done it, but it's hard to convince them. Otherwise, once they have you pegged as another deer, they literally will act confused and stop and look back. If they do get spooked, like, I, I don't understand. Why is there a person right next to you? Um, I smell a human they, so I, I would guess he probably smelled you or caught something really shiny. Uh, but I, I think we did have the conversation too, that, you know, decoy might not be fair, buddy. If you're not ready to take a frontal when he's walking towards you at that range, um, cause you're going to go out of them. Yeah. You're going to get a lot of opportunities when that animal's walking right straight at you at point blank range. 
and you know a white even a mature white tail you know a five plus year old you know i've never had any problem blowing through that those bones but um if i'd have been behind you at five yards that or at eight yards and even 10 15 i'd have been like park you need to kill this deer and get that bow back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I definitely was, it was as, as fast as I could get the arrow on and get clipped on. And it was, it happened as fast as it could possibly happen. And, uh, was he trotting? Was he, was he like on a, on a, almost a run? No. I mean, and again, like the specifics, when I say he was 10 yards, I don't, I don't know when it was that I first saw him. All I know is that I saw him and he was close and I dropped down. And then by the mm. time I was able to, get an arrow on and get clipped on. And I started rising up and drawing back. Basically I was trying to do that in one motion. And by the time I was able to get up and drawn, partially drawn, I'm seeing him at five yards. So I don't really know how he got from 10 or 12 or whatever to the yeah. final five. Um, but right. I just, I just remember being drawing back, coming into view, seeing him and thinking, all right, I'm going to put it right there. I'm going to center punch him and, and him mm-hmm. blowing like literally <laughs> and busting out as soon as, like, mm. as soon as I popped up. Did, uh, was the grass or the vegetation around you thick enough that you had to rise up to shoot? You couldn't just shoot, uh, be like beside you know, the side of the decoy. I mean, I, I, I basically was trying to shoot to the side of him cause I was on my knees and I was okay. like, I was on my knees and like bent over flat. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, was, yep. I was on my knees oh, as okay, low as I, I could you. get. And then yep. that's what like, the position I was in to try to like, hide myself while I was getting an arrow ready. And uh, then, gotcha. and then okay. from there, then I was just rising up like onto my knees straight enough that I could shoot. Um, gotcha. And the decoy yep. was off to my, I was, I was going to be shooting just to the left side of the decoy is what I was drawing. Okay. So, gotcha. yeah, I think that, you know, it, it could have been, it could have been a swirl of wind because we definitely did have like wind swirling occasionally down there. There was a couple times where I was, um, I mean, that was definitely on my mind a lot. So that certainly could be it. And then, I mean, there's the whole, you know, second guy that's behind me. And I can't remember if he had the doe decoy with him at that point or not, but Tyler had a doe handheld decoy that he was trying to mm-hmm. pop up when we were in a situation like that. I can't remember if he used it in that situation yep. or not. Um, but I mean, it was, it was super intense. I mean, I thought, I absolutely thought, okay, this is happening. I and mean, this is it. He's right here and <laughs> I'm going to get him. And, uh, he boogered out of there and that was disappointing, but I thought, man, there was those other bucks still on the meadow that we, you know, the other ones that were there. So like, well, let's move over there and see if we can't spot them again. And there'd been the big nine had been like seemingly on the dough, like on the edge of the river. He just wouldn't leave this spot. So the, the big, big one moved in the meadow, but I remember seeing the nine pointer standing by the river and I thought, well, let's go, let's work our way over that direction to see if he's still there. And sure enough, I moved, I mean, this is like a couple hundred yards maybe that I had to slip through, get enough that I can see over to the river again, and he's still there. And eventually I have to like belly crawl, um, first on all fours, then belly crawl, slip underneath the barbed wire fence, and I ended up belly crawling all the way to the river's edge. And he ended up bedding down with his doe like in the edge of the river. So like there, imagine like a mm-hmm. five foot bank maybe. Uh, and like he's mm-hmm. down beneath the bank in like these thick weeds right in the edge of the river with the doe. And mm-hmm. so I can see him and there's one little cedar tree down the bank on my side. Now here's, this is the problem is that he's on one side of the river. I'm on the other. Now this spot where he was technically it was public on the other side of the river too. Um, and I'm looking at the river. I'm like, God, it looks really shallow. You could see spots. Like I thought like, 
this might be shallow enough that, you know, if I can get him to just get pissed enough to walk 10, 15, 20 more yards my direction into the river, I could probably get a crack at him. So I slipped behind the cedar, like slithered down off the bank behind this tree, got down like to the water and finally just slowly ease my way into view of him. And he's, he's just not looking my direction. He's better there, kind of head down, looking around. And I ended up thinking, you know, the only, op- the only thing that might work here is to pop this decoy up. We're at like 50 some yards and hope that he'll do the thing that you described when they're bedded and you sneak up on one, you know, pop the decoy up, mm-hmm. get his attention. He'll get pissed and come your way. So I pop the decoy mm-hmm. up behind me or in front of me and I'm waiting. He never looks, doesn't look. And I grunted. I'm trying to remember what I, I can't remember. I grunted and he didn't look. It was very windy. Um, and I think I snort wheezed and then he popped his ears up and looked in my direction, saw the decoy and just like glaring at us. And then in like one fell swoop, he's up and running the other direction. And hmm. I think I, when that happened, I jump up and try to look up. He jumps up the bank and is now in the meadow running away. And the doe was running ahead of him. So I think that what happened is somehow the doe boogered out of there. And then he spun mm-hmm. to follow the doe is what I think happened. Now, why she boogered? Was it a wind swirl? Was it she just didn't like this other buck snort wheezing at him? Uh, or uh, who knows? Um, but that's what happened there. Um what do you think about what I tried to do? Was that, was that crazy to try to get one to come across the river like that? I, you know, I've never tried uh, a river, like small streams and tricks. Uh, I've had them cross, but uh, I've also had them stall out on the other side, even just like a, you know, something that's eight inches deep and 10 foot wide. And they just act like it's a, a brick wall. And so I, I think that just depends on the, the attitude of the deer. But I bet you, uh, I also, what I've had a lot of is if the doe is not quite yet hot, uh, the last thing she wants is another buck uh, harassing her. So sometimes those does will, you know, they they stand up first, they see you and they just come over like, hey, what's up? up? How you doing? And sometimes they stand up and they see you and they're like, oh, not another one. And they just, they're out. And we actually had that happen to us after, after, you know, we got done hunting and I went to Colorado and Nebraska, it happened to, uh, or not Nebraska, Colorado and uh, Kansas. It happened to us in both states where the doses weren't quite ready, bucks were harassing them. And, you know, we, they finally laid down, we got in tight. She saw it and she's like, nope, not, not, I've, I've got enough trouble here. Uh, and they, of course, they just follow her. So, Bobby, could you see this? I can't, I can't remember. Could you see that whole thing going down from your position? Do you remember seeing what happened? Yeah, definitely. I, I it's this one seemed like kind of a longer wait, and I was just watching the bucks on the other side of the river, and then you guys are kind of down at the edge of that meadow, and um, yeah, I, I couldn't determine anything you didn't say as to why why they boogied or anything, but um, it, it seemed reasonable for for them to cross the river because after watching them do it a few times, it was really only a few inches deep, and they didn't seem to have too much problem with it. So I was, I was hopeful. Yeah. It, it, it seemed like there was a chance. Um, now yep. I guess, I guess I could have tried to do like the hold the decoy in front of me and walk right at him, But that seemed, that seemed way higher risk than what I was going to try. Um, yeah. Try to get him to come my direction, but, uh, it didn't work out. Um, 
and that was that was basically the end of that day that morning. We I went back up to the knob after that. I mean, that was a lot. That was like four different close calls or something that and before yeah. before eleven o'clock that day. I mean, it was intense. It was up and down and up and down and running here and there, and it was crazy. Um, but then around lunchtime, some other hunters came by and started walking around, and then some ranch hands showed up and started fixing fences. Um, and so like that whole area just kind of was seemingly blown up and I kept going back and forth. Like, um, if we should stick it out there or explore this other opportunity, uh, to make a long story short, our producer was in town and bumped into like someone at the library and ended up navig. I don't even know how he does what he does, but somehow was able to connect with, a <laughs> was able to connect with a landowner who owns some private land on the same river we were hunting, but like miles down. And got us permission to hunt there if we wanted. So at first I was like, no, we're not leaving this spot because there's been bucks all over. But now it's like midday and now it's like two, now it's like three. And those ranch hands are still there. They're slowly working their way. And they're like right in our little bottom, like right in the spots where we're hoping to intercept a buck. And they're just going like fence post by fence post by fence post, making a racket, chainsawing down cedars and all that stuff. And decide, <laughs> you know what, maybe we should go try this other spot just in case. Cause this could be a situation where these guys are here till dark and our whole night might be blown. So bailed out of there, basically ran back to the truck. I think this is the day that the wind was like crazy strong. Bobby, was that the windstorm we were hiking out that night or was it the next day? Um, yeah, it, it had just started to pick up that day at the end of the day. Um, and then I think that's right. That same time when that doe almost took your head off. When we were oh, there. Man, I forgot about that. <laughs> so, so this is, this is that morning while we we're, you know, I think this is after those other hunters came by and we were our little yep. glassing knob. We were all sitting around this, this cedar up on this, this hill. And I'm sitting on the front edge of the cedar. The other two guys are kind of back off behind it. And I mean, just out of nowhere, a doe was running <laughs> right at me, like basically jumped over me, like literally within two feet of my head <laughs> was had been running along the side of the hill and ran across the cedar and I'm right there next to the cedar and just I mean feet from taking off my head. And I remember I yelled and then Tyler was like, ah screamed. Like we were both of the crap scared out of us. That was crazy. Um but yeah, got super yeah, windy. Those things don't happen in a tree. No, no. There's a whole lot of excitement <laughs> on this hunt that you just never have in a tree. Um but to make a to make a long story short, in this evening we we hightailed it out to this other new area. It took like an hour to get to this new spot. Ended up working our way, and this spot like just it didn't set up as well. There wasn't like high ground to glass; you couldn't see as much. But there was a lot of open country. Ended up spotting a decent buck going into a patch of cover. So I started kind of slipping my way towards it, and ended up spotting a really good buck, like another big 140, 150 type buck, um, seemingly locked on a doe. And so I ended up watching, trying to see where I was, I was wanting to get eyes on them one more time before trying to make a move. Basically I was in a little cluster of like cottonwoods and then there was a hundred, 150 yard wide opening of just open grass. And then it gets to this like clump of cottonwoods and cedars and stuff that he was in with that doe. And I didn't want to go running across that big opening until I could see him again and, and just get a good idea of where he was at. But time was running out, the days trickling away. Finally, I decided, you know what, we got to just, I'm just going to make a, make a move across this and get into the cover and try to sneak our way in there and maybe kind of do the thing you talked about, Tony, which isn't a high odds deal, which is 
try to slip in there and spot him before he spots me and maybe make a move. And tried that, got into that area without spooking anything, but never spotted him before dark came. So that was that night. Mm. The next morning, went back to the public land spot and just had a super slow day. Just, it was it was dead. Um, saw one smaller buck, made a move on him. He just wasn't interested. So that afternoon, decided to go back to the private property one more time. This is our last night. And almost the same exact same kind of thing happened. Um, was working my way towards that little thicket area where the buck had been the night before. I get to that last clump of cottonwoods, and sure enough, I spot him again in like the same exact place that I saw him 24 hours earlier. Like, and I'm not saying like in the same five acre place. I'm saying like within 10 yards of where I saw him the night before. Hmm. He was in the same spot, and he's chasing a doe now. So he goes running off the other direction with this doe, and then running back my way. But they're probably like 200 yards away, and you know daylight's fading fast again. Same type of situation. So. Again, I decided, you know what, I got a, I got a, you know, I was basically debating a couple things. Number one, the way the terrain, op- the way things looked, basically it was like a little funnel where this big patch of cover that he was in with that doe next down. And the only way to not be completely exposed out in the open would be to come past us. So part of me thought, man, if, if any deer leave this thicket, they're going to come by me. Maybe that doe is going to come this way and take him with her. Or take, yeah, take him with her. So one side said, stay here. Another side said, you got to bomb in there and try to just get on him. And so after a couple minutes, hoping to see them again, decided that, you know, last night we're down to the last like 20 minutes or something. You just got to hail Mary. So I decided that I was going to hold the decoy up in front of me, get Tyler right on my hip, and we were going to sprint across the field, run all the way across the field to get into the thicket, and then hopefully spot him in there. And... This is the last 20 minutes of the hunt. We go Hail Mary sprinting across the field. We get into the cover, and not within like 20, 30 yards of getting into the cover, I spot that buck running at us. Hmm. And so he's Hmm. running at us. We're running at him. We Same thing as like that other buck. I drop to the ground. I'm like, Tyler, get down, get down, get down. Drop down, stick the decoy in the ground in front of me. Lay, you know, kneel, same exact thing. I'm down on my knees, but as low as I can get, get an arrow out of the quiver, get the arrow knocked, get clipped on. As I rise up now back onto my knees, you can see him heading like head on, but behind a whole bunch of stuff. And he turns broadside at 30 yards, but just all sorts of brush and crap in front of him. I'm basically, he, he was coming straight on and I'm about to draw and he steps out broadside and there's just no way I can get a shot. And then the same exact kind of thing happened. He he stared for half a second, and then boogered and ran off. And that was that. Um, and I don't think I don't think the wind. We had a really good steady wind blowing the opposite direction from that time. So the only thing I can figure there was just like there was too much action there. You know, there was a cameraman moving around yep. for a better angle or something, um, or or I I don't know, but. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a super intense, <laughs> like, exciting thing. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was very intense. Sprinting across that field, getting into this patch of cottonwoods, running in there, see this decoy, this buck. Like, I think I think that buck heard us running, and thought that mm. that was a doe mm-hmm. or another buck. So he was coming to see like what's going on, and so and then he sees mm-hmm. this buck decoy coming at him, and uh, I mean, I feel like it, if there had not been all that brush, I think I would have killed him. Um, Yep. So, 
that was the hunt. That was the trip. I mean, it was intense. It was mm. really exciting. It was a ton of fun. I think that's the most fun I've had in three, three and a half days of hunting, like concentrated into a tight <laughs> dust like that probably ever. Um, so, I mean, it was a, it was a success in all ways, except for having fired an <laughs> arrow and filled the tag. Um, but I don't know, hearing anything that I did, Tony, the last thing I'm curious is, you know, given the situations I was in as best as I could describe them, is there anything that you heard mm-hmm. me say that you think I should have done differently that you would make me keep in mind for the next time I tried doing this outside of just trying to find situations where you can better do the main thing, which is find a buck better with a doe? No, I think you you played it right. It sounds like you're very aggressive and that's, I, I think you know. I think that's the right way to do it. You know, you're going to get uh, a lot of opportunities. I mean, you've all given it. You're in an area that has multiple bucks, but you, you know, you guys hit the rut just perfectly. It sounds like, yeah. And you had all kinds of opportunities on different bucks, and that you know, there's a lot of times when when we find ourselves we're running, and it's like, you know, you don't you don't think of uh, you know running from one little spot to another just you know, to get a, you know, to, to get a, a shot at a buck, a white tailed deer, but it, it really can happen with, uh, with the decoying system. And I, I think you probably did everything right. And those deer that those two bucks that, that boogered out, they just, they saw something they didn't like. And it's hard, it's hard to say what that was. Yeah. I, I really feel like if I had had, you know, like a full seven days and you got enough chances like that, you know, mm-hmm. one of them, one of them would pan out eventually. I think it, I, exactly. I definitely could have done it. And of all the things I've tried this year, I've tried a lot of different types of hunting and styles of hunting. This is the one that I'm absolutely for sure going to keep doing. Like it was just too much fun not yeah. to want to try again. Yeah. No, it is very exciting. And, and if someone would have told me before I started it, that you're going to have more opportunities on the ground, being mobile and taking the game to them with this decoy and you can get away with so much more. I'd have been like, yeah, whatever. They're white tailed deer. I've hunted my whole life. Can't get away with that stuff. And then, and then it happened and and you do. And I mean, I never even knew that a, that a white tail buck would pin his ears back and puff up like a porcupine and, and <laughs> come stomping in to kick it, you know, to kick my butt, you know, if I'm holding the decoy, I mean, I just, just the thought of that was, you know, and you're on his level is that happens one time to you and, and it works and you're just like, all right, I'm, this is, this is the most fun I've I done all year. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm dedicated to, to making it happen one of these days. Bobby, you've done some whitetail hunting yourself. Uh, after having observed this and being a part of it for a few days, what, what do you think? Is this, is this something you would ever try yourself or what was your general takeaway from this crazy adventure? Yeah, totally. Um, so I've done a, a little bit of whitetail hunting, um, but it's all been out in the mountains here in Western Montana with a rifle. Um, so I've never really been able to see up close, the action and just that much of it. Um, so it was really exciting. It almost, almost reminded me of like the elk rut, like just running around and having a bunch of encounters and watching them just go, go bonkers. Um, so, and it, and like you said, I feel like if there were more days, it, it looked very doable and possible. Um, so yeah, I would, I would love to get into that again. And, um, I, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it was, uh, it was everything I could have asked for. I mean, it really was, especially, you know, with it being like 80% on public land that we had never hunted before. It was, we just got really lucky that a couple of our 
guesses panned out and, uh, you know, got into bucks and hit the rut just right. And I mean, there were a lot of things that ended up going our way and then a few things that didn't. Um, but it was enough to make for a, a super, super fun couple of days. So I guess I just want to thank you again, Tony, for, for a taking the time to, yeah. to walk me through all that stuff and show me how you do what you do. And, uh, just teaching me and encouraging me to try this thing because it's, uh, it's now officially one of the coolest things I've ever done. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that and I'm glad you got to experience it. And I think, uh, I think you're right. So a couple more days, you, you would have got it done and I'm excited to see what, what happens, uh, next year or when next time you try to decide to try it. Yeah. I think it's going to be on the list for 2022. One way or another. So, uh, <laughs> so Tony, Bobby, I appreciate you guys taking the time to to relive this experience and uh, share the stories and and experiences. This is this is fun to get to kind of reminisce on a good time again. Yeah, of course. Can't wait for the footage to come out. Me too. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Couple plugs. Make sure you check out. One week in November, that's our new Whitetail series that's airing right now on the Mediator YouTube channel. Um, check that on out. Enjoy it. If you need any other Christmas gifts, uh, ideas for friends, family, or yourself, Mediator, the Mediator store, First Light, FHF, we've got a whole lot of stuff that we're working on. A lot of good deals, a lot of fun things. Check it out there as well. And I think that's all the plugs and updates and things you need for me. I'm going to let you go. Hopefully I'll have another good story and a podcast coming to you soon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.